0: probably, I don't know, it might be my favorite book in, in the Old Testament. Um, I mean, I did name my daughter Ruth uh, as well. Um, you know, I, I think it's such a beautiful, incredible story. And I don't know, how many of you guys have actually, have, have ever read the book Ruth? Maybe, maybe everybody's read it, maybe nobody's read it. I, I don't know, like, I mean, just showing hands, like, it's, it's one of those, like, it's a, I mean, it's a fairly, like, it's not a long book. It's not, like, the most talked about book in the Old Testament. For many of us, we probably don't even read the Old Testament that often anyway. um, You know, we we tend to focus on the New Testament if we read the Bible. But let me just say, I think, guys, I think we're gonna walk away, over the next few weeks, we're gonna walk away from the Book of Ruth just amazed at God. At least I hope, I hope so. And I would just encourage you guys to, to read the Book of Ruth. It's really short, it's four chapters, right? And really, you can look at it like four acts, like almost like a four act play, right? And so I would just encourage you, I mean, 20 minutes at most probably to, to read through the book of, book of Ruth. Um, depending on how fast of a reader you are, you could probably do it faster. Um, but even there, just to, to sit with it and to allow, allow it to, to speak, right? Because Ruth is more than just a, a, a nice story about a family, you know, about um, two women and, and, you know, like all this, like it's, it's more than that. It is a story that shows us about ourselves, and shows us about about god and i was thinking about this like through the lens of like a, a piece of art in many ways ruth is an incredible piece of art you know we were talking this morning you know lamenting the fact that uh, our beautiful paintings are are down um right nick nick painted some really cool paintings there for our series during during lint that was art right If you sat with it, you looked at it, you thought about it, there were things, you know, there were little Easter eggs in there for you to find. There were different things within that piece of work. And I think there's sometimes there's a difference. Like we get in our idea, like we know this, that like, right? Somebody may be able to paint, but that doesn't make them an artist. Somebody may know all the, you know, all about grammar and how to write correctly, but that doesn't make them a literary genius. Or, you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to write, be able to write a piece of of art or music somebody may be able to play the guitar very well but they may not be able to write a piece of moving music right we understand that there are things that there's there's a difference between a painting and a piece of art like a true piece of art or playing a piece of music and a piece of music that lasts a lifetime like Mozart right and so I think we need to think about Ruth through that lens of like A a story that's more than just a good story. It is a piece of literary art, you know, like Mozart or or something like that. It is masterfully written, okay? And so we're going to unpack that uh, a little bit this morning, but first I kind of want to put the book a little bit in in its context. So if you want to turn to the book of Ruth, it comes after Judges, all right? Okay, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges than Ruth. All right? Now, this is interesting because Ruth is a beautiful story. It truly is. I feel like if you read Ruth, you can't help but be moved by the story. But it comes in our Bibles after probably the most horrific book in our whole Bible, if I'm I'm just being honest. Like, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's horrible. You walk away from that book almost feeling sick. And, and, and good, you should, because that's what it's meant to do. But the book of Ruth then comes after that, and it is, it is one of those where it starts off very, very sad, but by the end, it has, it has the ending that we want it to have. Judges does not have the ending we want it to have, right? <laughs> Things do not end happily ever after, but in the story of Ruth, they do. And it sits then, right after, right after Ruth comes first and second Samuel. And so many people think, because what we read in the very first verse of of Ruth, is that it says, in the time of the judges. Okay, in the time of the judges. So it tells us that the story of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. So that awful story, that awful time in in the history of Israel, one of the, you know, again, the most horrific times, you know, recorded in the Bible, Ruth takes place during that time. But at the end of Ruth, is a genealogy, which for many of us might seem unimportant, except that it points us to David. And in First and Second Samuel, we read about David. All right, so you get this idea then that Ruth is a connector between the two books that Ruth helps us to see that even that God was at work, even in the time of the judges, that God was moving and working and moving things to his, uh, you know, towards his goals and his purposes, and that King David, we know, f- begins to fulfill those purposes of God that ultimately lead us to Jesus. right So the book of Ruth sits, sits there. Now, there are some, so just so you know, book order in the Bible is not an inspired thing, and throughout history, people have not always placed them in the same places. Ruth is also placed in many Old Testament collections, some of the oldest ones we have actually, written in Hebrew after Proverbs. I find that interesting. Does anyone know the last chapter of Proverbs? Proverbs 31, Proverbs 31, okay? And there's a famous part of Proverbs 31 about the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Some people say the exemplary woman, okay? What's interesting is that it starts off by saying, who can find a virtuous, capable wife? And then it goes on to list all of these characteristics of what a virtuous and capable wife would look like. She's more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her. She will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. It goes on talking about how hard she works, how she cares for those uh, who are, are downtrodden, how her husband, is, like she makes her own bedspreads, she dresses in fine linen and purple gowns, her husband is well known at the city gates where he sits with the other civic leaders. She's clothed with strength and dignity. And it goes on, again, we could read the whole thing, but it goes on talking about what a virtuous woman is like. And then we read the book of Ruth. And what's interesting is what we'll find, and this isn't until chapter 3, so I I suppose um, we're we're giving away a little bit of the story here, but what happens in chapter 3 is Boaz, a man named Boaz, declares that Ruth is a virtuous woman, that everyone in the city knows that she is a virtuous woman. And so what we find in many ways is Ruth exemplifies everything that Proverbs 31 talks about. She is the ultimate companion, the ultimate Uh, spouse. Alright, so again, what we're going to find as we read the book of, of Ruth is that it's a beautiful piece of literary art. It's full of irony. It's full of humor. It's full of tragedy. It's full of reversal and unexpected. It's full of bitterness and anger. It is like everything, I think, that we look for in a novel. But I also think it's 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 almost written, like I said, I think I gave it away a little bit like a play. So you have act one, two, three, and four. It moves on like this. And even there, you get summary statements at the end of chapter one, at the end of chapter two of everything that's come before it. And so, do you know, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been to a play and you got like the handout, right? And it has like the playbill that tells you about the characters, right? It gives you a little bit of backstory about the characters. I wanted to do that for us here really quick because we're introduced in the first five verses to almost all of the characters. There's only a couple of characters that are going to come later. And, and even there, I'll, I'll introduce... I'll introduce them too, but we're introduced to basically all the characters in the book in the first five verses the first character we're introduced to is a man named elimelech okay so even there we'll just read the first five verses we'll come back to it again but we'll read the first five verses of judge or sorry of ruth not of judges of ruth chapter one in the days when the judges ruled in israel a severe famine came upon the land so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were the Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Mahlon and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. All right. So we're going to get through some of just the... I think it'll help us as we start to read through the book, just to understand. Do you know, sometimes in books, writers write things, and, and they're important. They're important to know. And so somebody listening to the book, hearing it for the first time, there are different things as we walk through uh this chapter, there are different things that would have pointed out to somebody, you know, somebody within that culture, somebody who spoke Hebrew, when they heard these things, they would have gone, hmm, wait a second. You know, they would have meant something to them that maybe for you and I as we read it, it, it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't resonate in the same way. So I'm hoping that we can just kind of illuminate the book a little bit. Um again, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but when we meet alimelech, we need to know his name means My God is king. All right, we actually run into a character in the book of Judges by the name of Abimelech, which means my dad is king, son of Gideon. Um, There's a whole lot of irony in there. We did a series on Gideon. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, But Elimelech means my God is king. Now, if you know anything about Israel, then you know that was the way it was supposed to be. God was supposed to be the ultimate king, right? He was supposed to be the one in charge. And Elimelech, then, his name means my God is king. But if we read the very last verse of the book of Ruth, so if you like basically flip one page over, It sorry, the last of the book of Judges, before we get to Ruth, one page back, here's what it says in the very last verse. And this is a repeated phrase throughout the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So there might be some irony here in the name of Elimelech. In that his name means, my God is king. That's how it was supposed to be. But in the days of the judges, it wasn't like that. And even there, what we'll see is traveling even to the land of Moab is a bit of an ambiguous thing uh, for somebody who is an Israelite to do. Whether that's good or bad, whether he's living as if God is king or not, um, we, don't, we don't fully know. But anyway, interesting name. Naomi means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. All right, and that will play a, a bit of a role later on. Melon has an interesting name. I wouldn't necessarily recommend naming your son this, right? Weak, sickly, tired. All right? So I don't know why they named their kid weak, sickly, tired, but that's what they did, right? So they named him Maelon. All right? And then we have Killian, which is even worse. <laughs> Dead, come to an end. You know, like it, it can mean like to fade away or death. Like it can mean like deathly or like sickly. Like it has that same sort of mean like As good as dead kind of thing like obviously these kids must not have been too healthy parents didn't have a whole lot of hope they just kind of went like well sickly here you go like here's my two kids sickly and dead you know you're kind of like okay all right again um interesting name now Orpa, we don't fully know what her name means it might mean neck that's kind of the best now whether that has anything to do with anything who knows Ruth, her name means companion. And as I said, if we match it up with Proverbs 31, we find that Ruth is the ideal, the ultimate companion. She is exactly what somebody would appreciate to have as a companion, right? Okay? And then we come to Boaz. Now he's a character we'll meet in a moment, but his name or later, his name may mean strength. Possibly again there's some obscurity about his name. All right? Two more and we'll get we'll get through the uh, maybe for some of you boring stuff. For me, I find this really interesting. But again, I think helpful to, to interpret the, the text. We run into the character of Bethlehem. All right. So Bethlehem means house of bread, right? And if you again, if you sat if you weren't too bored in your English class, you know sometimes characters places can be characters. Okay. And I think Bethlehem plays a bit as a character in this story. So it means house of bread. All right. And that'll be important. And then there's Moab. Now, I didn't put down what, what Moab means, but, but Moab is a character in this story. If you know the history of Israel, you know that the Israelites are actually related to the Moabites. Okay, So through Abraham, his nephew Lot is the, the father of the Moabites. Okay, And there became animosity in between the two. They didn't get along, they didn't like each other right? So you've got a couple of instances, for instance, where um, the Israelites, as they were headed towards the promised land, Moab would not, uh, would not allow them to pass through their land. That's not looked very favorably, uh, <laughs> right? Um, so they were saying, like, no, you stay away from us. We don't, we don't like you, okay? Right? Then you've got, uh, you have times where, where the Moabites actually led the people of Israel into idolatry because they worshiped other gods, including a god called Chamoth. And uh, Chamoth was, uh, a god that was worshipped through human sacrifice, we think. Uh, many people think um, so. Not a real nice guy. Not a real pleasant character. Um, and then, and then finally, in the book of Judges, actually, we read about the Moabites. They were attacking the people of Israel. And, and there's a there's a crazy story. The kids the kids usually love it because it does have a bit of humor. Where um, you have a guy named Ehud, and another guy named Eglon, and Eglon is the king of the Moabites, and Ehud uh, actually assassinates him, uh, which but Eglon was so fat that the sword was like engulfed into his body and you couldn't even see it anymore. So that's, that's typically, I don't know. It's one of those like, why is that mentioned in the Bible? But it's there. It says he was so fat, the sword just, you know, kind of made its way in there. Anyway, and then there was relative peace in the land between Moab and Israel. And we don't know if this story takes place at that time or, or whatever, but needless to say, not particularly looked on favorably. So if you think about from from the point of someone listening to the story right and you start in the days of the judges when the judges ruled in israel right there you know this is not israel's best moment right it's actually a really terrible moment in the history of israel so this story takes place at israel's worst like they are awful okay and as you read then so a man from bethlehem from the house of bread Um, when there was a famine the house of bread had no bread and so they went to live in the country of Moab. And somebody listening to that then is gonna go, ooh, how do I feel about that? Now was not a prohibition against it necessarily, but <laughs> given the history, you're probably gonna look at that and go, hmm, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. We'll see how this turns out, right? And then not only that, then you read after Elimelech dies, that his sons, Melon and Killian marry Moabite women. Ooh, again. It's not about ethnicity, it's about, it's about what they worship, who they worship. That's the big problem. But they're going to look at that and go, well, we may have a problem on our hands. But what I love about the story of Ruth is Elimelech, Melon, and Kilian are not the point. And in fact, the, uh, the author gets rid of them really quickly. And so, so will we. <laughs> That's going to be the end of the story. Whether or not they should have gone to Moab, we don't know. Whether or not they should have married Moabite women, we don't know. The author doesn't say. And in other places where people do wrong things, often the Bible says uh, that was a bad idea, right? And it doesn't say here. Puts no blame on them. So we're just going to say it's ambiguous. And I think the author does that on purpose because in the ambiguity, it makes the story timeless. It makes the story timeless. One other last fact about the story uh, here, is that the characters in the story mention God doing all kinds of things. But we need to be careful. Because the narrator actually never mentions God. Not once. Characters in the story do. But we need to be careful when we listen to these because we need to actually ask, did God really? Or or is the character feeling that way? For instance, as we're gonna read here in just a second, Naomi blames God all of her problems she says, "The Lord has left me bitter. now did God do this to her? Well we don't know but we also uh, but it certainly seems like it's probably not because God brings is going to be the one who brings redemption into her life Threw from tragedy to redemption all right so um What we find then in the book of Ruth, the main theme of Ruth, I think, is is the the theme of redemption. So the word in Hebrew, redemption, uh, for redemption is mentioned 21 times in the book, which should give us a hint that that's probably an important theme. The theme of redemption. And Ruth then shows us, this book of Ruth, the interplay of God's purposes and human decisions. So yeah, we see, I think, importantly, how God works throughout history to bring redemption for his people. All right, and and here's what I'm going to say. I'm just going to throw this in for a moment. I don't know where you're at in your life exactly. I know where some of you are. I I know, but I think that's an important point that we see throughout the book of Ruth is that God desires to bring redemption in your life. And like Naomi, you may not feel it and you may not experience it right now, but we have to trust that is the reality that God is working things towards. And so let's go ahead and let's walk through the story together. We're just going to start over from the beginning and we're going to read the first 22 verses and walk through them together. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem, in Judah, left his home, and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were the Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Mehlon and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Now, I just want to stop there for a moment again, <laughs> but just briefly, because I think we see in that Ruth has suffered severely. Even in those first five verses, we see that Ruth has suffered. or that Naomi has suffered. Ruth as well, but Naomi has suffered. She's lost her husband, right? Because when they left, and this is in verse one, it says that Elimelech took his wife and two sons with him. All right, and the word for sons there is just like a son, like a grown son. You know, we have some of those in here, right? It's just, it's just a general word for saying like a grown son, like, hey, this is my son, right? And then as we come down to verse five, we read that both Mahlon and Kilian died. Naomi lost her two sons next. Her entire family is gone. Her home is gone. Her husband is gone. Her two kids are gone. And that's what verse 5 actually tells us. That Naomi was alone without her two sons or her husband. Now, the English obscures this a bit. Because it uses a different word, the author uses a different word for sons in verse 5. And it's more like her babies. Her babies. She left with her two grown sons, and in the end she had lost her husband, and she'd lost her baby boys. And I just think about how even in our house, Alyssa always says to the boys, you'll always be my babies. And I just think about what Naomi suffered and I don't want to minimize that guys. I don't want to just jump to chapter four. Everything's wonderful. Everything's great. Life has suffering in it and we need to recognize that. I think sometimes in the, in, you know, just in general as people, we don't like to even, even acknowledge that suffering exists. We want to ignore it as much as possible. And, and, and we don't want it in our own lives, let alone to walk through it in the lives of other people. But I think we need to recognize what the Bible recognizes. There is suffering in this world and it's horrendous. It's horrible. And you and I are not exempt from that. Many of you have faced great suffering. Many of you have been through all kinds of horrible things in your life. None of us are exempt from suffering. And maybe you haven't had that much in your life, but I promise it'll come. (laughs) Like we live in in a very broken world and we will experience suffering. And one of the things about Ruth that I, the book of Ruth that I think is amazing is it helps us to walk through that. Similar to the book of Job, we find someone suffering and they don't know why. And so as we keep reading, Naomi is broken and she hears that then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. Now I told you Bethlehem means land of bread or house of bread. Well, the word here used for good crops is lahem, which is bread. So just a fun turn there, that Judah, by giving them bread or crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughter-in-laws, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. Let's just see for a moment. What Naomi is doing is not cold and heartless. I told you that the time of the judges is a real dark spot in Israel's history. And I won't regale you with the stories of Judges. But it wouldn't have been a safe place for any single woman to live, let alone a foreign one. See, the Old Testament actually makes provision for taking care of widows and foreigners. And so Ruth and Orpah should have been safe in Israel, but they wouldn't have been. They wouldn't have been. And Naomi knows she's going to struggle to even take care of her own self, let alone be able to take care of two daughters-in-law. And so she says, go back home. You're still young. You've got a chance at a husband again. I don't. And even if I did, I'm not going to give you kids. I'm too old. Go home. Find a husband. Settle down. Live as a Moabite. And just forget all of this happened. I'm going Home. No, they replied. We want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now, I told you earlier, be careful about how we trust our characters. (laughs) Did God really raise his fist against Naomi? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right? But that's how Naomi feels. That's how Naomi feels. Maybe you guys have been there. Maybe you've been in that place where you just feel like God has raised his fist against you. What I want to say is, it's okay to feel that way. The Psalms, there are places where the Psalms feel that way. Just because we feel something doesn't make it true. It's okay to feel that and to process that. That's one of the things, again, I appreciate about the Psalms, is their honesty. We can can say that to God. If you're going through a really tough time, it is okay to tell God how you feel. Even if, that, even if that means saying, I feel like you've raised your fist against me. But what we find out in the story, again, as we go on, is that I think we see that that's just simply not true. Instead, God has actually been caring for Naomi, even when she couldn't see it. And so, things Maybe bad for Naomi, and, but she recognizes again that things will be worse for Ruth and Orpah. And so again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Now again, nowhere in the text does it say it was wrong that Orpah went home. It doesn't say that. So I think we have to be careful about criticizing Orpah. But, again, the, in, in, in the literary world, and, and is, is you have a, what's called a foil sometimes, like a character that, that helps to bring out traits in another character. Okay? And I think that's what we have with Orpah. She goes home, and she doesn't do anything wrong, but what we find Ruth doing is just that much more remarkable. Right? It just brings out how remarkable what Ruth does here is. Because it says, And again they wept together. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, and you should do the same. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. What we find is two broken women clinging to each other. You know, we can talk about Naomi and her brokenness, but let's not pretend that, you know, Ruth, everything was fine. She'd lost her husband. Not only that, she'd been married to him for 10 years and had no kids. Now, that seems like, okay, that's not that big of a deal. Lots of people are married for many years and never have any kids. And, and that, like, but in that society, for one, it was looked as if the gods were punishing you. For two, your security, like there wasn't, you know, nobody was paying PRSI. They weren't putting into a pension plan. <laughs> Your kids are to take care of you when you're older. And if you don't have kids, you've got no one to take care. So look, on many levels, even there, that was a difficulty. So for the last 10 years, she hasn't had any children and now her husband's died and she's been left a widow. We have two broken women, three really, I mean, if you count Orpah as well, who are worried about what's gonna come next. Yet Ruth, the companion, has shown her loyalty to God and her loyalty to Naomi. Ruth here shows a loyalty both, again, you know, Naomi, for for good or bad, has said, like, hey, go back to your gods. And Ruth says, no. And she shows a loyalty, I think, first and foremost, to Yahweh. Your God will be my God. I'm not going back to that. Your people will be my people. I will be loyal to you. And what we find then is this loyalty, even when it doesn't seem to make any clear sense, it goes against anything that could be, you know, if you were making an argument, that's what Naomi does. Naomi looks at the facts, she makes a rational argument and just says, go home, I've got nothing to offer you. And Ruth says, no, thank you, I'm going with you. And she makes this incredible pledge. So the two of them continued on their journey this is verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? the women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi. When the lord has caused me to suffer and the almighty has sent such tragedy upon me so naomi returned from moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law ruth the young moabite woman they arrived in bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest so naomi gets back home and all of her friends that she hasn't seen for you know how 10 years are all excited to see her I can't believe it's Naomi. Like, again, we're talking about a small town. Bethlehem's not some huge city, right? So Naomi strolls into town and everybody's excited to see it. Like, it's Naomi, she's back. And they must have been like, where's Elimelech and Baelon and Kileon. And then she gets the fun joy of telling the story about how they all died. And as part of that story, she tells them, you know what? My name may mean pleasant but I don't feel pleasant. Call me Mara, because I just feel bitter. My life was full when I left here, and now it's empty. Maybe you know somebody like that. Do you know, I think about a lot of our church, you know, we've moved from different places and we go through different things and maybe, maybe sometimes we felt like that. I don't know. It's one of those, as I sat with this, I wasn't exactly sure. What, it, what, it, what exactly do I say? Other than to let the text just say, and maybe Naomi is, is speaking words that you've felt. Maybe Naomi is speaking words that you can resonate with. But just to say, that's not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story that God has for Naomi. But verse 22 ends up being a summary of Act 1. It concludes the statement. It concludes the first act with this statement. They arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now this is significant because everything that we've read, right? Naomi has been blaming God. She's miserable. This is all God's fault. God is punishing me. God hates me. God doesn't care about me. He doesn't love me. Just call me Mara for I am bitter. And then we come to this last line. And what we have to understand is we need to read this. Again, I told you the narrator never mentions God. Right? The narrator never mentions God. Characters do, the narrator doesn't. Instead, what he does is something really, really beautiful. Something really brilliant. We have these moments in the story that seem like, you could almost say, for anybody on the outside watching, if you're not the narrator, if you're Naomi or you're somebody else, you're looking at these instances and you're going, well, that's just coincidence. But what the author wants us to see is it is not coincidence. Instead, we could read it almost as to say this. It just so happened that they arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. It did not just so happen. And we're going to find these moments come up through the story these sort of it just so happened moments. And as the reader, we are meant to see this is no coincidence. God's hand Is at work. And that's why this series is called A Desperate People and a Present God. Why I kind of just subtitled it that is that you and I, we are desperate people, and so often we can't see what God is doing. We don't have that view from the mountaintop looking down on everything that God is doing, how He is working all things. We don't have that view. And so as we're sitting in it, as we're sitting in pain and suffering that maybe had nothing to do, we didn't cause it, we didn't do anything to to make it happen, we can feel exactly like Naomi. But I think what what God wants us to understand in the book of Ruth is to go take a step back and realize that even in the pain, even in the suffering, God is at work. Now, do I think God goes around causing everybody to suffer and have pain? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think all of that is determined and rendered certain and all of that. I think God is sovereign over it, though. God is sovereign over it. And so I just want to, want to take a few minutes here to kind of have a bit of, of introspection, I suppose. this um, as I was thinking about it too, a good story, right? And I said this in the beginning, but a good story, a really well-written piece of art, has the ability to critique us as we read it. As the reader, it begins to speak to us. We see ourselves in the story and it challenges us and our thoughts and who we are. And so I wanted us to take a moment with that. To think about it. What does this say to us and about ourselves? Are we Naomi? Are we Ruth? At times, are we both? Have we been both? That when, when the difficulty hits, when the trouble hits, what happens? Naomi is understandably crushed. She's lost everything. Her entire life has fallen apart. Her faith is in shambles. How do we deal with suffering? And where is God when we suffer? I think those are two questions that come up really, really strongly. And I'm not going to say we're not going to have what's called a theodicy and why God allows suffering or anything like that. We don't have the time for that. But to say, when the things happen, when the stuff happens, how do we process it? How do we deal with suffering? And where is God when we suffer? And how we answer these questions, I think, determines the way we're able to deal with it. Naomi is bitter and angry. And hurt and I don't pretend that Ruth isn't hurt as well that Ruth isn't mourning and in pain that her decision to leave behind her family wasn't a difficult one that her decision to leave the land where she was from wasn't difficult either but the way that those two women I think deal with the same issue should be an encouragement to us right because I think maybe for some of us our tendency is probably to deal with it like Naomi And some suffering is worse than others. There's there's some suffering. Let's be honest. There are things that are painful that for us we can just kind of, we can move on from it. Right? You know what? I have the ability to move on from that. It wasn't that bad. It was terrible in the moment. But you know what? I can move on. But there is real suffering in this world like what Naomi experiences where it is not easy. And it would be very, very easy for us to sit in that moment just like Naomi for the rest of our lives and live as Mara. To be Come Mara. So let that define who we are. But Ruth doesn't do that. Naomi goes from full to empty and from pleasant to bitter. But Ruth goes from full to empty and she presses into God. She presses in to God. And it strengthens her commitment and it strengthens her to be able to do what needs to be done. And as we'll see later in the story, to be able to provide for Naomi, to be able to be the daughter-in-law she wants to be. It gives her the ability to bring Naomi along with her. She doesn't blame God. She moves towards him. And I think that's the thing we need to move towards God. In our times of suffering, Like I said, I think it's fine for us to ask God why. And even to process out loud, God, I feel like you have raised your fist against me. But instead of turning away from God to press into him, to remember who he really is, that he is the good father, the loving father who cares for us, who wants to walk with us, who seeks our redemption. And so... We find Ruth's faith in God then led her to faithfulness to Naomi. Now, I've forgotten to move slides, so here's this one. God often shows his faithfulness to individual people through the faithfulness of other individuals. Naomi experiences the faithfulness of God Even in this moment, she begins to experience the faithfulness of God through Ruth. Think about John chapter 13, 34 to 35, that says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is why the church is important. We suffer with each other. And we bring each other with us. When my strength, when my faith is weak, and Luke talked about this is it two weeks ago, that when my faith is weak, you bring me along with you. You help me to see the character of God when I am blind to it. You help me to see the faithfulness of God when in the moment I am blind to it. And as your brother in Christ, I can do the same for you. That that's the way, the beauty of the church is that we help each other in those moments of deepest darkness to walk through and to see God for who he is, even when we are blind to it in the moment. And what I think we find in Ruth is not some sentimental Christianity full of cliches to make us feel better, but we see the rawness of humanity and the love of God on display. I think about Romans 8.28, right? That God works all things for good according to the purpose of those who love him, or sorry, according to the purpose of those who love him and are called to, jeez, I should just read it. Uh, <clears throat> it's one of those, you know you have something in your head, so you're like, this is my problem. I put it on my notes. I'm all confident. Yeah, I've got that memorized and then in the moment, I don't. All right. I'm just going to read it so that we can actually get it for, you know, correctly. Romans eight, twenty-eight, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Again, that oftentimes gets used in a very cheap and sentimental way. But what Paul does not promise in Romans 8 is that bad things will never happen to you. And it doesn't promise, even there, that when bad things will happen to us, that we'll see the good right now. It says God works all things for good, but it doesn't say when we're going to see it. It doesn't say or promise that we will ever see the good. Only that in the end, God will use it for good. And in this moment, Naomi does not see the good. That out of the evil that God can bring, that can bring good out of real, true evil and horrible and pain and suffering, that God can bring good out of it. That doesn't make the suffering and the pain good. It doesn't make them wonderful. It doesn't make them nice. It doesn't make them pleasant. They were bitter. But what it does mean, the hope that we have, is that somehow God can take that bitterness and bring joy, that he can bring pleasantness again. And what we'll see in the book of Ruth is that Naomi, there's so much like it's, it's it's a weighted sort of book in that you have kind of um, like on one side A and on the other side A again at the end, right? So you have this very bitter Naomi in the beginning and in the end, she's pleasant again. It doesn't make everything that, didn't ha- that happened to her not bitter. But it means once again that God has brought good in her life. The pain was real. The suffering was real. But God would give her joy again. He would once again make her pleasant. Again, coming back to that idea of a work of art, because a great work of art doesn't help us just to see our own circumstances. It points us to something else. And in this case, it points us to God. The book of Ruth is primarily about God. He is the main, even though he's not mentioned by the narrator. He is the main character in the book. While there may be an underlying goal to tell us about the line of David, as I mentioned in the beginning, while it may be an underlying goal to tell us of what life was like under the judges, that it wasn't always so bad, The primary purpose of Ruth is to teach us about God. Ruth teaches us to trust that God is at work even when we can't see it. That God is sovereign. That he can take tragedies and the difficulties of life and bring good from them. The story of Ruth teaches us of what we read throughout the Old Testament. That God cares for the brokenhearted. For the downtrodden, that he cares for the weak, and he cares for the vulnerable. Think of Psalm 34:18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. We have a loving God who cares deeply for his world. And as we reflect on the gospel, right? We reflect on the book of Ruth on this side of Jesus, right? We see we see that God even suffered for us. That in Jesus, God entered into the brokenness of humanity and was murdered by the people he came to save. He experienced a pain and a suffering that was unbelievable. right? Psalm 53 says that he was well acquainted with suffering, and yet through that suffering, God brought good, right? Because through that suffering, the suffering of Christ, we have salvation. And so the story teaches us that God seeks to redeem his people and ultimately to bring blessing. Naomi experiences blessing in the end. Like I said, we'll get there. She experiences blessing in the end. But it's more than just the blessing of a child, it is renewed relationship. It is peace in her life in all directions. Ultimately true and lasting peace will not just come through her great-grandson David, (coughs) but Jesus, who will return and set all things right one day as the true and forever king. So, as we finish here, I just want us to think through this. Like, How does Ruth help us? How does even this first chapter of Ruth help us? What does it expose in our life? What does it bring up? What hurts and pains does it bring up that maybe we haven't walked through? That maybe we haven't processed? That maybe has left us bitter? Maybe we're in that place. Maybe we need prayer. Maybe we need to make commitment like Ruth. Finally say, God, you will be my God. I don't know. What is God asking of you? As you sat through here through this long sermon, what was God saying to you? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that the Bible never short circuits or cheapens the hurt and the pain in this world. But God, when we read even a, a chapter like Ruth, chapter one, God, we see pain and suffering on full display. We see Naomi broken. And yet, God, even in this first chapter, we get a glimpse Lord, that you are still at work, even in our pain and our suffering. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to remember that, whether we're going through that right now or or whether, Lord, it's coming for us because we know in this world there will be suffering and there will be pain. But Lord, the good news is, Lord, that we know in you it's not forever. God, you will bring good and ultimately, God, you will be victorious and there will be peace on earth again. So, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.